have here a uh, special disclaimer, if you don't mind a little disclaimer now and then. It's not bad. Especially if you use barbecue sauce on it. But uh, we have a special disclaimer here tonight, which is to the effect that uh, the following program is in exceedingly bad taste. And for the uh, squeamish who may be among us, <laughs> George, don't tell me there's some squeamish still left. I like mine poured over the baked potatoes there, a little squeamish. Bring it up there a little bit there. Uh, for the squeamish among us, you'll find that right down on the dial here, about 15 or 20 notches, they're, uh, they're playing a salute to Julie Andrews. I think you'll <laughs> like that. God only knows why, but you'll like it. And that is if you're truly squeamish. So, uh, nevertheless, we thought we'd give you that disclaimer so that you don't, uh, so that you don't have any uh, misapprehensions about what is likely to follow. By the way, this does not represent the views of the management, nor of the speaker, nor uh, anybody connected with the program. Uh, <laughs> it kind of covers it, doesn't it, gang? Uh, George, yes, uh, this is Uncle Wiggly here, and uh, I. Uh, do really wish to say that to you, that uh, that uh, this, for those of you who are squeamish tonight, there's an exceedingly bad taste show, because this happens as we get more, more and more into summertime. It's it's a thing that uh, has been noted among certain uh, sociologists and behavioral, behavioral uh, psychologists that uh, as man gets closer and closer to the tropical climes, he tends to get looser and looser. And well, you just well, you know what it's like. Heaven's sakes, you, you're you're in it with me together here. So don't come on and try to pretend that you're innocent, friend. Hey, wouldn't it be great if you were innocent? Wouldn't that be something? I mean, can you imagine how it would feel to be innocent? <laughs> it must be. <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I, I uh, personally, I, I'm convinced that I was born deeply sullied, and. Uh, I've often talked to my mother about that. She denies any uh, any uh, responsibility. However, it must be just, you know, the general ambience. <laughs> general ambience. Is he on trial, too? So uh, before we get any further, uh, I would, to clear up uh, some problems that have occurred from time to time on the show in the past couple of months, it seems that I left a couple of loose ends hanging around. And by the way, if you have a loose end out there, friend, I wouldn't very too far from home. However, uh, nevertheless, uh, I, I would uh, like to correct that problem tonight, that a couple of weeks back, we played a, just a small piece of a record. Now, this is not a record show. If you tuned in to hear music, forget it. Go on down the dial. It's not a music show. Sorry, friend. There's other things in the world besides guys plunking away on guitars and stuff. I hate to tell you that. That is heresy in our time, but uh, it is true. There are other things. And you'll find it out one day when your guitar is rotting there at the top of the third shelf from the back of the closet. And uh, you're walking around with this seamed face and you wonder, what the hell I ever do with that guitar? And it'll be there. It'll Don't worry. It'll wind up in a pawn shop. In fact, I was on Third Avenue today. And uh, for those of you who haven't visited Third Avenue lately, it's an exciting street here in New York. And uh, it is. It really is. It's one of the few exciting streets. It's truly exciting. And uh, you can go... You can go all the way down from, uh, oh, deep in the heart of uh, the Neo-Bowery down there in First Avenue. Yeah, in fact, there's a little touch of the Bowery all the way up First Avenue, even in the most elegant parts of First Avenue and Third Avenue. It sort of sprays over. And like I was on Third Avenue, I began to notice that, that in between all those chromium buildings, there are guys that keep falling out of doorways. You know, and they get this uh, empty bottle of Thunderbird, and they keep yelling out at you and stuff like that. It's just all part of New York. And so I'm walking along through part of Third Avenue, which I find particularly fascinating, is the pawn shop section down here. Even down there, there's about 15 real swinging pawn shops down there. And uh, it's kind of nice in the sunshine, especially with the sun beaming down, to see the junkies going in and out, getting rid of your old typewriter, you know. In fact, <laughs> you know that the, you know they even got a phrase for that, don't you? You know that uh, for those of you who don't know much, much about the underground, uh, there is a phrase. I bet a lot of you don't know that there's a phrase that deals with that specific problem. That is the problem. Have you ever gone past a junk shop or a or a pawn shop and looked in the window and all this stuff is hanging? You they got everything. They got saxophones in there, 
And uh, it's been a long time since anybody's come in and bought an alto sax. But there's a lot of saxophones hanging in there, and you can get a complete set of matched spats uh, that was stolen, no doubt, out from somebody. And all this stuff is hanging in the windows there. And I, I looked in, and I could see people going in and out. And uh, I've never pawned anything, personally. Although I have been with a guy one night when there was a transaction of that type. I just happened to be a, a spectator, and it was kind of exciting. Uh, this guy, a uh, friend of mine, he was, uh, well, he was scratching, uptight. And, I mean, in the classic sense of uptight. Uptight really means broke, you know. It doesn't mean nervous. It doesn't mean that you are racially biased. What it means is that you're out of dough, frankly. So uh, he, he, uh, he was, uh, had a little altercation over on 8th Avenue in a very chic bar. Seems that he ran up about a $40 bill over there, and he had about $6 in his pocket, which made him very uptight. As a matter of fact, he was negative uptight, which means that uh, he not only... Well, when, you, when you've got $6 in your pocket, you're not truly uptight, but when you've got $6 in your pocket, you owe 40 That's called negative uptight. That means you're behind the game. Uh, yeah. So uh, a couple of minutes later, we were in a pawn shop there, and he was trying to pawn everything he had. All he had was, uh, well, he had two felt-tip pens, which he had gotten, uh, a match set, by the way, uh, which he had gotten at Woolworth a couple of hours before. And the guy laughed at him. And uh, he finally wound up by pawning his wife, and she's still there. Of course, it was good riddance. I mean, I knew her. She, you know, and and he got far more than she was worth because I happen to know what that chick is worth. And uh, he got far more. I, I don't want to get into this. this. Is a sordid world I'm talking about here. And, uh, and after all, it's this, you know, it's a day in June, and what is so rare? And you don't talk about sordid stuff in June, do you? Although I would like to tell you something that may be of uh, some, uh, uh, maybe give you a little insight into why you're feeling so bugged. That you know, this is the suicide season. Did you know that? Yep, that's right. Uh, April through the 1st of July is the suicide season. That's the peak season for suicide. So if you're going to do it, friends, do it now. Uh, at least uh, you'll be on the top of the bell-shaped curve there. You wouldn't want to be in the bottom of any bell-shaped curve, would you? <laughs> oh, no, my God, no. <laughs> uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, to reduce it back to its basic... Uh, to its basic... Uh, well, let's put it this way, its basic elements. Uh, speaking of basic elements, I was... Uh, I was curious. Uh, have you been following? Uh, have you been following uh, razor blade commercials lately? Have you noticed they're running almost through the entire periodic table with new metals? Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Every week it's a new one. See, now uh, it usually goes like. Can you give me a little echo chamber? Hey, Matt. See. Okay. Uh, I'll, wait. I'll give you the cue for it. See. Uh, how many? How many times have you seen this commercial? Now, slate blades. Come with the final and the ultimate breakthrough. Zirconium blades. Yes, first it was platinum, then it was chromium, then it was steel, then it was cardboard, then it was tungsten. Now it's zirconium 90. These blades will cut your razors. Zap. They'll take your... They'll take your whiskers off without even using the blade. You just walk past the... Uh, medicine cabinet there, and they just melt because of Zirconium 90. Well, I, I can just see the, the... Can't you just see the uh, the, the discussions going on? Because after all, I've never known... Matt, you've shaved. You shaved, don't you? You, you? you started to shave last week, didn't you? Fine. Yeah, we had a little celebration here. We went through a, a futility rite. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a fertility. I'm sorry. It's a fertility rite. <laughs> or maybe in some cases it is a futility rite. But that's uh, <laughs> not bad, is it? But, uh, <laughs> George... But that, nevertheless, uh, you know, Matt, I think you are a straight arrow. I really do, and I admire straight arrows. I do. Uh, but nevertheless, uh, uh, you've gone through this blade thing. You do shave. You use blades? All right. You've tried all kinds of blades. You know, they keep advertising them. And uh, have you noticed any appreciable actual difference on your jowls with the various types of blades, the new magic blades? That's right. I have noticed the same, too. It's the same old problem. A couple of days you shave, and it's the same problem. You've got John paper all over your chin, you know. And the, there's, a thin, uh, there's a thin foam of blood that you see trickling down the mirror and all. And uh, you very quickly forget that you're using the new magic blade with zirconium-90 in it. 
And so then you have to search for another. I, I think I think one of man's great search, one of man's, and this is almost exclusively a male thing. I hate to say this to you, Betty Friedan, but uh, one of man's real true problems is the search for the ultimate razor blade. And so it is. It's a, it's a true search, like Ahab. And, uh, you know, searching for the white whale. And so you search and search and search. And uh, they've gone through all, all, half of the periodic table. You know what the periodic table is? Good. Has nothing to do with birth control, friends. They were talking about something very, very much more complicated than that. Much more. And uh, we used to have, when I was in, taking chemistry, you know, kind of basic, uh, I took chemistry, inorganic chemistry. And then I took organic chemistry, and it, it never took. Uh, I took it the two years of chemistry, and I still can't quite remember what salt is. And all I know is, you know, you put it on there, and that's it. That makes things taste salty. Now, I really... I, isn't it N.A. something? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. By George. <laughs> I remember N.A., yeah. <laughs> Old N.A. Dockweiler used to work upstairs on the 28th floor. I never forget him. But nevertheless, uh, his nickname was Sodium. But uh, we... we uh, oh, what a terrible show I'm doing tonight. But uh, nevertheless, uh, the problem here... Uh, I can see it now. These guys are sitting around... You know, the boardroom, uh, one of these big, dynamic razor blade companies. And they're up against a, you know, they're up against a, a, a stone wall. The company's been in business, you know, for 75 years, 150 years. This is the company that provided the cannons for the Whiskey Rebellion. You know, they go all the way back to that one. And so here they're sitting now, they're up against a brick wall because they're, they're dreaded rival, they're hated rival has just come out with these these blades which are sweeping the country. Have you noticed every couple of months there's a blade that that sweeps the country? Guys run out like mad and they buy them. And uh, there's even signs on these little discount stores, yes, we got them, clout blades. With the, you know, and the guys run in, they buy these things. And uh, it's, uh, it's like the woman's eternal search for the perfect, for the perfect deodorant. That's a lady search. Man's search is for the perfect razor blade, and of course, this gives uh, this gives a wide open field for any uh, you know any and all charlatans. But I can see this meeting. These guys are up against the brick wall now. They're the guys that brought out Zirconian ninety, and it swept the industry. And uh, along comes their hated rival, and he brings out something called uh, Marzalite twelve, and that sweeps the business. And now they've worked their way all the way through. The metals in the periodic table. And they're sitting there up against a brick wall. And C.G. Bullard, sitting at the head of the counter, the head of the table, says, Men, we've got to have an idea. What with the beards getting more popular? What with guys growing mustaches? You know what's going to happen to us? The same thing happened to the barbers, right? What happened to the barbers? Yeah, they're all working out on... Queens Boulevard in the used car lots now. That's where they're working. Now, we've got to have an idea. And I can just see the guy down at the end says, Hey, i got one. Don't, don't laugh at me. i got an idea, J.D. And here it is. Now, look, we work our way through all the metals, the common metals, right? Iron, brass, steel. We come out with a new aluminum blade, the one that bends. Every time you use it on your whiskers, that was good for a while. We've tried everything. One thing we haven't used. The rare gases. How about a blade made of pure argon? So subtle, so soft, that you can't even see it. We'll be able to sell these guys nothing but empty boxes. The new argon 12 blade. And then after that, we can follow it up with a neon blade. After that, we can... Oh, there's no there's no end to the rare gases. <laughs> Helium. Yes, what is it that powered the Graf Zeppelin? Helium. We'll sell that. And it'll happen. And by George, I, 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 I see the day. <laughs> I see the day. Hello, it's all right. You look very nervous in there. It's a very busy studio. Now, you see why we didn't have other people in there? Constantly give and take. Uh, uh, speaking of give and take, it is time now, friends, for me to give and you to take. I mean, you're getting this show for nothing, so we might as well give you a commercial. Hit it there. 
Yes, sir. That was very good. Thank you, man. That's nice. A little variation on the theme there. If you're looking for a lot of car value, friends, listen to this one. Your Plymouth dealers of New York, New Jersey, Fairfield County are coming through with specially equipped Fury V8s. Oh, boy, are they mad. And Plymouth Scamps. They're so cute. With the automatic transmission at no extra price. Actually equipped. In fact, the special equipment on a Fury V8 means equipment you'd probably order anyway. You know, like power steering, folding antenna wheels, power disc brakes, air conditioning, AM radio with a whoopee button on it, vinyl roof, white side walls, and other specified items. On the scamp, it means a vinyl roof, white side walls, the joke box, deluxe wheel covers, and other popular options. So that's why Plymouth sales for New York, New Jersey, and Fairfield County... And all those Plymouth dealers are up 26% over last year. And last year, oh, I'll tell you, they went out. They went ape last year. So see your Plymouth dealer now. He'll come through for you. This guy's accommodating. Hello, hello, test. Very good. Okay, now, uh, last year, yeah, it was nice. Very good. <laughs> yeah, a car called a scamp. <laughs> Why did they come out with a whoopee lout? You know, for guys with sloping foreheads. All right, uh, that's enough. Uh, enough. We, we don't want to encourage him too much. Now, the point that I was trying to make here, very circuitously, is this. That about uh, six or seven weeks ago, I was wandering around through uh, Woolworth over here on uh, Times Square. See, whenever I... Uh, to, to me, this is a breath of fresh air and true honesty to walk through Woolworth. There's no airs in Woolworth. Nothing. Yeah, I mean, it's just great. You know, you walk through there and... and uh, First of all, I wonder if, if you're like I am. Do you find the, the, the girls who work in Woolworth for some curious reason? Yes, that's right. <laughs> I don't know what it is about them. I don't, it's just there. They're all like human walking cakes of yeast with feet, you know. Oh, sensuality is just rampant there. Do you feel that over there? I do. It's just terrible. I, I, so I go through there once in a while to refresh my head. See, I walk through the Woolworths there to get down there, and especially walk around the... The notions department there and all those great departments. And I go down to the hardware department. Oh, wow, boy, I tell you, there's a girl down there in the hardware department in one of the Woolworths here in town that makes Sophia Loren look like a brownie. You know, the kind that you buy the cookies from. Oh, she's something. So, anyway, I walk around in this place, and I like, I like to smell. All Woolworths, all dime stores smell the same. They have a, they have a, I don't know, it's a, it's a, I, I suspect that if there was a real smart, perfume company. They wanted to turn out a real aphrodisiac. They could turn out a perfume that is faintly aromatic of Woolworths on Saturday night. And especially if this is sprayed on a very elegant girl, it gives that nice, you know, that nice little touch of the true earth, which uh, all men are really secretly lusting for. Touch of the true earth, you know, a girl who walks with sand between her toes. <sighs> But, uh, nevertheless, <laughs> sorry, nevertheless, uh, I told you it was in bad taste. You you came here, you, I, I warned you, now don't get mad. Crying out loud, what kind of a slug? Well, all right. But, uh, nevertheless, I'm walking through Woolworths, and I, I, I go back in the record department. This is where you really see it, you know, all the guys with the black shades walking around the Woolworths on Times Square, walking around back there. And uh, they've got this uh, big box of records that says, uh, these records, 12 cents to 99 cents. And this is where you get some really ripe stuff. So I'm looking through this box, and I came across this record. And it was a moment of trauma. A true collector's item, at least as far as I'm concerned. And, uh, you know, I vibrate. It's the only one there. 99 cents was the top price there, too. Ranged from 12 cents to 99 cents was the top price, which made it feel kind of good. I felt a little good about that. A true collector's item. Now, I'll warn you right off the bat, it's terrible music. doesn't have anything to do with the music on it. Nothing to do with the music. So would you please play a little cut of that, Matt? Thank you, please. As you can see, the music is rotten. Terrible, terrible. <laughs> Ain't that awful? Well, now, wait a minute. It's supposed to be sardonic. In other words, it, it, it is. this is tongue-in-cheek music. What does it sound like to you? Now, how many times have you heard this kind of music on these cheesy little TV commercials that show up about 4 o'clock in the morning on these slum channels, you know, way down at the end of the dial there where they have these movies that were dubbed out of Greek subtitles and shot underwater. You know, the Steve Reeves hours comes on every couple of weeks there. He's always playing Hercules. 
All right. Well, how many times have you heard the commercial where the guy comes on and says, Have you envied those friends and neighbors of yours who can dance all the latest dances like the cha-cha, the ding-dong, the monkey, and the slob? Yes. You, too, can dance just the way this man and this woman are dancing. Be the envy of all your friends. Make new friends. <laughs> yes, call our studio at Main 6SJ7. Call it now and you will be awarded two free lessons in the cha-cha. Call now, this minute. Our operators are on duty. You've seen that, haven't you? Doesn't that sound like that kind of music? Well, all right. Now, if you'll flip it over, Matt, and if you'll play cut one on the other side, you will hear something even more intriguing. That is, it's personally intriguing to me. You get it all queued up in there, Matthew? All right. Now, here's the way it went. Now, hold it. I'll give you the cue. It was always a dramatic moment that the that at this moment, the lights would get kind of... It was a color film. See, the lights would get kind of blue and the spots would narrow and focus on a doorway. And uh, over and above the doorway, all around it, were these big revolving balls with the... With the uh, mirrored planes. You've seen these things in ballrooms that revolve and they got mirrors all over them and this was reflecting yellow and green lights and the uh, the camera would move in sort of on this door and you'd see this big spotlight get narrow and then all of a sudden this music would start. And guess who would show up in the doorway? Believe it or not, that is. Uh, I'll just explain to you what that is. That's uh, so. Don't write and, and uh, tell me that. Oh, I see why you think that's a great record. That's uh, Aki Spingarn on the uh, on the horn there. No, 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 no. You know why that's a true collector's item, Steve? You just walked in. No, it is. If you don't, all right. Pick up the record album cover. Show it to him. Look at it. You never heard of that. Yeah, but look who produced it. Look at the top on the other side. Come on, look at the whole... Yeah, look on the other... That's right, look on the other side. That was a Joseph Levine movie. That is correct. And it was a wild picture. And, uh... Guess who was one of the three stars in it? That's right. That is correct. You are listening to him right now. And you know about that movie? It was called The Light Fantastic. Oh, that is, that is, that uh, turns everybody. <laughs> now they're all interested. <laughs> they all get up and look at it. Well, The Light Fantastic was a movie, and is a movie, that uh, was produced by Joseph Levine. It's a real big-time movie. It's not one of these little, uh, you know, turkeys that guys shoot in the backyard with their double eight-millimeter uh, Super X film. This is a real thing. And it was about the world of the dance studios. And I was the manager of a 6th Avenue dance studio that was selling lifetime cha-cha lessons. Now, curiously enough, you would think it's a funny movie. No, it wasn't. It was a sardonic movie. Oh, no, it wasn't funny. It was a very sardonic look at this world, see? And my job... Now, now see, when I would show up, see, this was my theme. Every character in the movie had a theme. And I was the manager of a 6th Avenue dance studio. One of these... One of these dance studios, you know, you see over these cheesy drugstores, right there in the heart of the porny belt. And there's a big picture of this lady wearing a 1932-type ballroom gown. And she appears to be dancing what looks like a slightly uh, overweight Fred uh, Astaire or somebody, and she's dancing around it. And I was the manager. And it was my job to convince these 87-year-old lonely ladies that their life would be changed instantly if they learned how to dance the monkey. And this was my theme. Oh, listen, it was a... 
Now, I'll tell you something. This is WOR New York, speaking of... Uh, but uh, I, uh, that movie caused a, a somewhat of a sensation in Europe. It played all over Europe and was a big deal in Europe, yeah. And, uh, it, no, there, was reason, there were reasons why they didn't bring it back here. It wasn't, wasn't because it wasn't a good movie, no. Legal reasons. You know that a lot of movies are produced that never show in this country for one legal reason or another. Are you aware of that? You didn't. Well, it is a lot you're not aware of. And uh, so rather than risk all kinds of lawsuits, uh, they decided to let it go at that. But it was a wild movie. It's called The Light Fantastic. It was shot, yeah, it was shot along 6th Avenue. It was shot uh, uh, out along, uh, you can imagine what kind of a theme that is. Fascinating theme. It was shot along uh, places. It was shot out in Long Island, too. They they had a couple of ballrooms they used out there. And they, they actually went out and got a whole gang of ladies, a whole bunch of them, who were really uh, involved in these things. It's a real strange movie. And not, it isn't quite the kind you think it is, though. You think it's more like a, you know, an Ernie Kovacs takeoff type thing. No, not at all. No, no, it was a, it was like a, how can I put it? It was a curious, uh, uh, quality to it. It, it reminded me, do you ever see a movie called Touch of Evil? Well, did you ever hear of Orson Welles? Well, that's Touch of Evil. You've heard of it? Uh, and it had that kind of strange, turgid quality. <coughs> Which meant that it was... By the way, that, uh, in case you're interested in what that is, that was not a shaky voice call you got out there. That's called the 6th uh, Avenue Croup, which uh, New Yorkers developed. It's, uh, you can tell the New Yorker. You know, you used to be able to tell him by his, his, uh, his uh, you know, his New York accent. Now you can tell it by that little cough, that little hacking cough that in the middle of everything he's talking <laughs> He goes like that. Well, that's, that's a New Yorker, and uh, he gets used to that. However, uh, tonight, uh, since uh, I, I just put this on here because a lot of people have been writing. Apparently, they've been hanging on trying to figure out what I meant by that collector's item. I never, never, uh, I never cleared up the mystery last time, so that's why it is a collector's item. I actually found a, an LP of the soundtrack of that movie. It's funny, the soundtrack was released all over the country, but the, the actual movie never was. <laughs> and uh, as far as I know, it's probably still playing in Europe. And uh, curious movie. Got, got good reviews, too. Yes, really did. Uh, but <clears throat> nevertheless, tonight, since it's, uh, you know, it's uh, pretty soon will be summertime, full length of summertime. If you noticed, I don't know whether, I don't know whether or not the, it bears anything, any relationship to, uh, how can I put it, uh, uh, the supernatural. But about a year ago, I started to talk about, uh, if you recall, about cockroaches. And very shortly thereafter, there was a tremendous surge of interest in cockroaches. You saw all kinds of pieces in the paper about cockroaches, right? Well, now how often does the New York Times find it in its, uh, you know, in its great, vast, overpowering view of the news, how often does it find it... Uh, uh, necessary to write about the simple lowly worm, the earthworm. That's right. Well, a couple of months back, we started our earthworm program. See, because I think among all the various minority groups that we live with, the earthworm has rarely been accorded the credit that the earthworm should get. And as a matter of fact, is often simply ruthlessly trod underfoot. Strung up on fish hooks. That's a terrible way to die. I mean, that is absolutely... The worst thing you can have. Can you imagine? Guy sticking a fish hook through your head. He runs it down through your neck and runs it out your thorax. Right. You know, and he holds it up and says, this one's still wiggling. And he throws you in. How would you like that, huh? Well, that's what happens to the earthworm, friend. And yet he plods on. Well, for those of you who are becoming earthworm fans, as you know, a couple of months back, I told you the story of how I got very early involved in the growth and the creation of a whole earthworm empire. You're listening to the Earthworm King of Cleveland Avenue. And uh, uh, for those of you who say that the earthworm likes milkweeds, you're way off base. That's not what the earthworm eats. If you're, if you're interested in raising a good crop of earthworms and you really want to know what to feed your earthworms, you're listening to probably one of the very few truly qualified commercial experts on the East Coast who is willing to let the secrets out. Now, you have to be serious about this. I'm not going to fool around with any dilettantes, any guy that's, uh, 
You know, just, oh, I wonder what the, what the earth was he? They said they did hockey for it. No. You must be over 21 and a qualified earthworm lover. And it will be mailed to you in brown, brown sealed wrapper, and I'll give you all the information as to what the earthworm really goes for. If you want to have big, fat, succulent earthworms who, in fact, volunteer for the fish hook. These, these, these are these are born fishworms. I'd like to I'd like to read you a piece that just appeared in the newspaper here. One of the papers. Let's see. It's the Asbury Park Sunday Press. It's a hard hitting comic weekly, and uh, here's what they say: Lowly earthworm is man's best friend. Mm-hmm. Washington, and it comes out of Washington, and they'd know about worms. It says the humble earthworm makes the busy bee look like a ridiculous loafer. The worm works so hard and so well that he could justly be called man's best friend. Now, uh, of course, you just can't make a statement like that without calling in official people to, to uh, endorse it. So, no less a scientist than Charles Darwin wrote, and we are quoting Mr. Darwin here. <clears throat> By the way, he had stomach trouble all of his life. To be honest, it wasn't stomach trouble, actually. It was, uh, was a little more uh, basic than that. He had a terrible time, mostly. Anyway, he says... It may be doubted if there are any other animals which have played such an important part in the history of the world as these lowly organized creatures. Now, you can see why he was always controversial. Darwin still is, matter of fact. You mentioned Darwin in certain parts of the country here, and you're going to get a fist fight going right now. In fact, a lot of places right here in New York City. As a soil creator, conditioner, and preserver, the earthworm has no rivals. Tirelessly boring through the ground... An earthworm eats its weight in organic matter and mineral soil every 24 hours. It takes in leaves, grass, stems, dead insects, animals, larvae, and all of it. It just eats its way through the earth, solidly. All of this material passes through the worm's digestive system, which includes a muscular gizzard, where soil is thoroughly ground. The residue is deposited, is deposited in the familiar mounds called castings. These castings are rich topsoil. By the way, the common earthworm is called the Lubricus terrestris. It comes equipped with tiny clusters of bristles in each segment. And in spite of the earthworm's omnivorous appetite, it has a, t a sense of taste. By the way, the earthworm will pass up cabbage if celery is offered. And will reject celery if carrot leaves are available. But uh, I know what an earthworm will reject in place of everything else. Incidentally, do you know that there's a new business now? Speaking of earthworms, and I hate to hear this because as an earthworm seller... It's, uh, it's, it's happening. A Norwalk, Connecticut man has the last word in vending machines. One that deposits worms. <laughs> the device is the brainchild of Roy Cooper. The idea came about so fishermen could obtain night crawlers on a 24-hour basis. You know, when you need some night crawlers at 2 in the morning, that's, you're uptight, man. It ain't easy to buy them at that hour. So he has a machine. Cooper says he didn't know where he could get them, so he invented a machine like that. Cooper and a friend started on the plans three months ago and placed their machine in service this past week. The dispenser works on the common vending machine principle. Money goes in one slot, worms in a plastic coffee cup come out another. That's a kind of a groovy-looking machine that uh, kind of looks good. He says, the worms usually sell for 40 cents a dozen, but we're selling 15 or 16 worms for 50 cents. The machine holds 35 cups of worms. Incidentally, he calls it the vendor worm. Also, he has another name he's considering, the Wormomatic. I kind of like that. I like Wormorama myself. But uh, <laughs> I could see some guy, you know. Can't you see some guy with a snoot full on a Saturday night? And, uh, oh, yeah, I, I, nothing I like better than a, than a snoot full, you know, a drunk walking along trying to work a machine. And uh, he comes staggering along there, and he needs cigarettes. And <laughs> he's, oh, hey, Charlie, here's a machine. And it says 50 cents on it, see? So we go, oh, a couple of go, yeah, a quarter, Fred. Of course, his friend Fred reaches into his pocket like all drunks, and he pulls out his keys, and all his change falls out and rolls all over the floor. They're running around the sidewalk, and they're crawling around. They finally scrape together two quarters. He goes over to the machine, and he puts it in. Oh, oh what kind do you want? Oh, okay, kind of, I just cigarette. So bang, he hits the button, and out comes a couple worms. No, come on. And the next thing you know, they're going down the street smoking worms. 
They appear they're so drunk that the you know the, the cigarettes just look wiggly. But uh, that's uh, six and one half does the other. I, I I'll tell you this though, personally, vending machines I have a great I have a great uh, sense of respect and trepidation about them, because uh, one of the most embarrassing things I ever saw happen happened with. In fact, I had a terrible thing. Two wild things happening with vending machines, which have forever left me scarred somewhat. I guess that's true. Well, I'll tell you, one of them happened in a department store, and I was I was. I was maybe nine. I had this kid brother who was about two years younger. You know, he's seven. And we're supposed to wait by the elevator. My mother says, I'll be right down. Wait by the elevator and don't go away. So we're standing by the elevator in this big department store right in the middle of Chicago, you know, 15 stories, escalators, the whole bit. And next to the elevator, they had a candy machine. You know, big kind, Hershey bars, Babe Ruth, Butterfingers, all that stuff. And we're standing there and looking at the machine. Neither one of us had any money. Now, uh, how many of you have the secret, the secret uh, habit of always trying every machine you're near? You pull every knob to see what's going to happen. Did you ever have anything come out? Yeah, that's right. You did, didn't you? Uh, it's kind of a great feeling. You pull it, like, goink, out it comes. I had, I had a, listen, I, I, I've been feeling good all week because of a great thing that happened to me last Monday in a phone booth. I, for once, I got my own bag. I put a dime in the machine, you know, in the phone, and I dialed, and I got this busy signal, which kind of surprised me. The phone was working, and uh, just the idea that it worked was good enough, and I felt kind of good about that. And you know the button up at the top that says coin return, press? I have never had one of those actually work. They just I think they're just a fake button. It's a placebo. You know what is it, a placebo? You know, that's a, you know it's a placebo. And uh, I think the phone companies put that up there to take your anger out. So you keep pressing the button, and somehow the more you press it, the better you feel. At least you're doing something about it, you know. You press the button, and, uh, and of course, what that does is lights a, a red light down at Central. If you keep pressing it long enough, a cop shows up and taps on the thing. says, oh, buddy, vandalism, that's called. And so I'm, I press the button. I just press it. I'm mad. I want my dime back. So I press the button, and there's a click in there. Eight dimes came out. Eight dimes came out. Well, of course, I called the operator and I told her immediately that I was going to all put them right back in the machine. <laughs> That's what I did. Yes, indeed. <laughs> you can bet I did that. Listen, I'll tell you, there's three ex-vice presidents of the phone company who have retired in the last year alone on dimes that I have lost in slots in New York. I mean, uh, it just must be fantastic. I mean, the amount of extra dough they get that way. So nevertheless, uh, I'm, I'm standing next to this candy machine with my kid brother. Now, Randy had a very skinny hand. He was little. He was seven. He was very skinny. So he sticks his head, you know, the bottom of that, that tray where the, where the candy bar comes out of, he sticks his hand up into this candy machine. So he's reaching up in there. And nobody's paying any attention. It was one of these big dollar day sales. There's 28 million ladies running back and forth and hitting each other with umbrellas and stuff. And uh, he's got his hand up in the machine. So he's going like that. I said, can you feel anything, Randy? He said, yeah, yeah, there's something in there. I said, well, reach up higher, here. So he's got his elbow. He's all the way up to his elbow now. When all of a sudden, something inside the machine goes, chunk. 34 baby roots come sliding out. He hit the button in there, and it just came out. Wow, like that. Well, a large gentleman wearing a chrysanthemum in his buttonhole, the floor walker, immediately descends on us, you know, zap. And we're caught with the goods. We have about 25 baby Ruth bars between the two of us. You know, we're also, we've got a whole handful of them. And he held us incommunicado. And our mother showed up. Very embarrassing. She <laughs> There we stood. So ever since that time, I've, I've been a little worried about these things. Although, I must say, being a true 20th century technological man, I continually go back for more. I continually do this. No, I, I, we're, really, we're, really, uh, we're really strange people, you know. We're slaves of the machine, even though we'd like to put it down. Uh, we, we, we are. There's something about the machine. And one of the worst moments I ever had with the machine was when I was a male boy. And uh, I'm... I'm uh, delivering mail in the in the steel mill, and you know it's a kind of a 
kind of a groovy job. I really liked it, running around the steel mill, up and down. And we had a, we had one route, or route, if you prefer, called the city office route. Now, the city office was the main office in Chicago. And the actual running around, delivering mail, took place in the big steel mill plant, which was in Indiana Harbor, Indiana, tremendous big plant. And once every eight weeks, you would be assigned to the city office, which really meant that all you did was to take two trips to Chicago with a sealed, locked bag beside you. Now, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of James Bondish. <laughs> that's really kind of great. And so you take this train. It was a, it was a big inter- interurban, uh, the South Shore, which is a big, fast electric train. And on that particular day, you couldn't wear what you ordinarily wore in the mill, which is, a you know, corduroy, work shoes, and all that jazz. You had to wear your suit because you were going into the city office, which was in a huge bank building on LaSalle Street in Chicago, just about like Wall Street here in New York. And that was very elegant. And, man, those guys were, were kind of mythical to us. We'd hear about the front office and those names, that big names like J.P. Morgan, you know, John D. Rockefeller. I mean, very official names. So on this particular tragic day, I like to, I like to, I like to play it up big, too, when I go to the city office. I'd walk in with my suit. See, I had my, for my eighth grade graduation, I still had that suit. Came down to just a little below my knees. And <laughs> by that time, it had, it had linoleum, linoleum patches on the elbows. So, uh, this big day, I ride in on the train. I'm sitting there feeling like a big time type. And I'm going into Chicago, and I've got this bag next to me with all the big orders. It's all sealed. It's got a lock on it. And I get in the elevator. This is a, 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 a building made entirely out of marble. And I take the elevator up to the 23rd floor, which was the executive offices. Now, I, I had four stops to make. One was the orders office, like the sales office. Another was the uh, what they call the controller's office, where you deliver these little blue slips and stuff. But the big trip was up to the executive suite. This was it, man. I mean, it was so elegant that they had these thick, rich, bigelow carpets on the floors everywhere. And you could smell money. You walk out there, smell power. And you'd look out of the windows and you could see the lake stretching all the way to the Canadian border. And a fantastic view of the lake and all of Chicago. And this is where the big, really the big men walked. And they had one office that was kind of like a combined reception office and that had uh, some beautiful girls sitting in there with pink telephones and mysterious-looking doors with men's names on it. And it was all marble everywhere. And I walk up to this office where I have to deliver in person my special bag of special hot items. With the, it's locked to my wrist. They even had the thing, you know, with a little... Uh, have you ever seen those diplomatic pouches? You ever worn one? Yes, they lock it to your wrist. And and I don't know what was in that thing. They never told me. But uh, I suspect it was thousands and thousands. Of, we were all bonded. I suspect it was thousands of dollars of various types of negotiable things. Because it was locked right to my wrist. I'm feeling very official. So I walk up to the girl and I said, uh, Is uh, Mr. Kluberman in... I delivered to him personally. He was the executive secretary to God himself. Mr. Kluberman here. He says, oh, uh, one moment, please. So she presses a button. She said, kids here again. And there's another pause. Send him in in about five minutes. I'm busy. So I walk straight and elegant, playing it big. Because somehow you feel like the front-line troops. You have come back from the mill. And to these people, the mill was like the combat zone to, uh, you know, to guys uh, who are working way back someplace in Fort Dix somewhere. You know, it's another kind of soldier. I've often wondered what they think of the soap factory over here at the Lever Brother plant. You imagine some guy shows up actually from the soap factory and he smells like uh, rancid coconut oil and all that stuff. And he, he, I, But they wouldn't even let him in to the Lever house over there, see? So here I am, I'm back from the... With that, with that look at the combat soldiers. I'm walking around, looking very enigmatic. The hell I have seen around the blast furnace. And uh, these girls are looking at me. He's from the plant. You know, he's from the mill. He's seen it. My God, the hell he's seen. So I'm playing it cool. And I've got this big leather thing strapped to my wrist. 
I walk casually along this beautiful marble hallway waiting for Mr. Gooberman to call me in. And I see a Coke machine up against the wall. You know the kind that says, uh, press this button if you want ice? The kind with the little cups? So I play it cool, you know. I reach in my pocket and I take out a dime. I'm going to have a Coke. I put the dime in a slot, press the thing. There's a pause. You know how those machines go, <clears throat> down comes the cup, thunk. And then the Coke starts pouring out. You know, <laughs> cuts off. Plump. Down comes the ice. I reach in and I take my ice cold Coca-Cola in the paper cup. I just take one sip of it. Just as I start to sip, the machine goes by itself. Thunk. Down comes another cup. It starts to pour. Here I am. I, the, the Coke there. See, so I reach down. I take the other Coke out of it. Now I got two Cokes in my hand. And I, I look around. I said, gee, I hit, the, I hit the jackpot. At first, there was this excited feeling. I have hit the jackpot. I got two Cokes for my dime. So I quickly slug down the one Coke. And I take a look at Just as I look at the other... I'm just looking at the other Coke. The machine goes clunk. Down comes a cup. Three Cokes. Well, now I got two Cokes. I put one down on the ground, see, the empty one. I've got a, I pulled the, the, the next Coke out of the machine, and now I've got two new, fresh, brilliantly sparkling Cokes in my hand. When the cup comes down, and now I've got a fourth one in working. And now all oh, the people are starting to look at me, see. I'm standing over in the corner there by this uh, elegant marble wall. I have four Cokes. I got one Coke down on the ground. I got another Coke now kind of balanced on my knee. I got two Cokes in my hand, and this machine is just like cornucopia, friend. It is turning out Coke after Coke after Coke after Coke, just like the ad. And I, it, I don't know what, it's going ape. The first time in my life, I hit the jackpot. Well, I said to this girl, well, I said, hey, you want a Coke? <laughs> I got a Coke. I'm, I'm buying it. I'm like a Coke here. But she says, no, thank you. And she walks on past. In something less than 12 minutes, I had over 53 Cokes. Now, I am not exaggerating. They were all over the floor. I kept pulling them out and putting them down. I didn't know what to do. These people kept looking. Nobody, not one person tried to help me. They just kept looking like this. And once in a while, they'd whisper. <laughs> now, I hear this giggling. Wound up with nothing but plain water coming out. Plain water. Once in a while, a little piece of ice. It ran out of cups, ran out of Coke syrup, but it didn't run out of water. And the water's now dripping off over the floor. And finally, I go in, I see Mr. Gooberman. I got my thing. And he says, uh, what's going on out there? I say, here are all those people laughing. I say, you like a Coke, Mr. Gooberman? I'm buying. <laughs> and so you're listening to the legendary Coke uh, maven here. I'm, uh, I'm famous for producing Cokes just at the touch of a button. I can do almost anything with a touch of a button. Let's try it there, Matt. Thank you. That's real good. Say, Dad, for the right car buy... And for the right service, you got to see a New York, New Jersey, and Fairfield County Plymouth dealer. I mean, this guy is not fooling around. They're coming through with a small economy car that is making it big this year. Big, 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 big. Plymouth Duster. And if you live in New York, it's the Plymouth Duster. Uh, Duster's small enough to handle, park, and it goes easy on the gas, and it's large enough for the room, the power, and the safety, and the swinging you need for today's driving. So no wonder Duster is America's hot-selling compact. Now, last year, for example, Plymouth sales were at an all-time record for New York, New Jersey, and Fairfield County Plymouth dealers. At this year, paced by the magnificent Duster, they're up a whopping 26%. So go with a winner. You don't want to be a loser all your life with a car that's a proven leader. Plymouth Duster. You get a lot more car for your money. See your New York, New Jersey, and Fairfield County Plymouth dealer now. Duster. Hey, that was real good. You don't mind, Duster. Oh, uh, oh, yeah, I've had... Uh, although I did have one great moment, though, with a machine one time. Oh, yes, uh, and it uh, has forever provided me with an inspiration. It, uh, it was a machine that produced your name, it produced uh, your birthday, it produced also your sign of the Zodiac on a penny. <laughs> you ever seen those machines? Put a penny in there, and, uh, and uh, you press the button, and you put your name and with all the little letters, and... And then you wait, and out comes the penny. And it's got your sign of the soda. Oh, only one thing wrong. Mine came out, uh, Piskies. 
What is that, a fish? Well, that's not my sign of the Zodiac, but it looked a lot better than my real sign of the Zodiac. So, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I've always had that thing with me. I keep it down on my desk. I keep a lot of little things that keep me... By the way, speaking of my desk, uh, there is no, nothing to the rumor that my desk is going to be sold at auction. Uh, this this uh, was bruited about, I heard, on 7th Avenue a few weeks ago. There's nothing to that rumor. However, there is something to the rumor that the exterminators have been called in again. This is the third time in two years that my desk has been overrun with various small creatures. It always happens in the summertime. It's like the day that the program director came in and this big pile of papers, he saw something moving. He said, I'm not going to say anything. I'm not even going to come in the room until you tell me what's under all them papers. Well, I was afraid to find out myself, so I just moved down the hall four or five offices, and we sealed up the room, and now we're starting all over again. So, uh, please, Matt, bring it up there. There, very nice. Oh, uh, yes, by way of uh, assignment, uh, this is the assignment for this weekend. My television show. It is not called the Merv Griffin Show. My television show, Gene Shepherd's America, will be on tomorrow... At 8 p.m. This will be on the Blue Book exams for this semester. So there's uh, just no way for you to get out of it. It will be on tomorrow at 8 p.m. on PBS. Locally, that's Channel 13, which is not exactly a lucky number. So uh, bring it up large there, Matt. Very good. And so that concludes tonight's salute to the lowly earthworm. Concludes tonight's salute to mediocrity, wherever it might exist downtrodden, forgotten, left in the great rush towards excellence in this magnificent country, moving ever upwards and onwards towards total perfection. And uh, the next time you show up, please do something about those uh, about those strings, will you? Come on out. And uh, that tie is terrible. You're just kidding yourself, friend. You don't know how silly you look. But we do. We can see you. Yeah. W-O-R.